Well, hey, Apple Theology listeners, welcome to another episode at the Frontier of Theology, Culture, and the Church. This is a unique one because the person being interviewed is actually me, and uh, that's unusual. So I don't know quite how to handle this, but my name is Josh McNall, and we're talking about my new book called Perhaps Reclaiming the Space Between Doubt and Dogmatism. Rest assured, I will not be interviewing myself, however. As always, I want to thank Oklahoma Wesleyan University for sponsoring this episode, and if you would help us out by giving us a nice, honest review wherever you download this podcast, or consider sharing it with a friend, sharing it on social media, wrapping the URL on the leg of a homing pigeon, releasing it upon the world, however you want to do that, we appreciate your help in getting these episodes out there. And so without any further ado, me talking about perhaps reclaiming the space between doubt and dogmatism. Toward the beginning of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, the narrator Charles Marlowe recounts a memory from boyhood. As a child, he had traced a finger over an early and unfinished map of Africa. At that time, he states, there were many blank spaces on the earth. But as the modern era lumbered forward, those spaces would be filled, not just with ink, but with blood and steel and change. And this filling brought both progress and loss. The globe ceased to be, as Marlowe says, a delightful mystery and became, quote, a place of darkness. Nonetheless, Marlowe admits that he was always drawn to the blank spaces. This book is like that. It's a strange work because it fuses disciplines that are normally kept safely separate. Theology, fiction, apologetics, cultural analysis. And it may also be controversial for at least two reasons. First, it levels a rebuke against the fractious tribe called evangelical, while stubbornly refusing to defect in sheer embarrassment. And second, it endorses a word that is anathema to many theologians, speculation. The term almost always functions as a shame word in theology, even if it is not always clear what it entails. To be speculative is invariably a bad thing, or so a host of theologians tell us. My claim is that they are wrong. Or more precisely, my claim is that they are not always correct. Sacred speculation, or what I call the ability to say perhaps, is sometimes required as we stand on the foundation of Scripture and the shoulders of the saints. From this perch, we peer into the blank spaces on the map. Well, hey, Outpost Theology listeners, that's just a short quote from my book, actually, called Perhaps Reclaiming the Space Between Doubt and Dogmatism. But if you were worried that I was going to be interviewing myself, I, I assure you that's that's not the case. I want to I welcome a friend of mine and my editor, David McNutt from IVP, who's going to be helping us out with this episode. So thanks, David. Thanks, Josh. Really appreciate the invitation. And uh Thanks for allowing me to be here and kind of flip the script on you a little bit, put you on the other side of the table. Yeah, it's it's uh, I'm looking forward to it. Well, I just I want to say um, I've told you this personally, but I'll let uh, your listeners know that I just thoroughly enjoyed working with you on this project. And your opening quote there was really helpful because I think it does situate the book. Helpfully, it, it's not like other books. It's uh, certainly within kind of the academic discourse or the typical discourse that we might find. Um, in academic publishing. So it was quite different. And I think, you know, for me as an editor, for me as a reader, uh, that was really intriguing and enjoyable. So thank you, first of all, just for your contribution, not just to our line at IVP Academic, but to 
our theological conversation in both the academy and the church. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing how it's received, and I'm sure it's going to make a great contribution. So um, I'm curious how you might describe the book in your own words. I mean, I, again, it's not a typical theology book, right? It's not a biblical theology that says, let's look at this portion of the canon, though it does engage with scripture. It's not a work in systematic theology that says, let's look at this particular doctrine, though you talk a lot about theology as well. It's not a work in historical theology that says, let's look at these you know, particular figures and kind of trace the development of theology over the course of the church's history, though you do a bit of that as well. Mm-hmm. How would you describe the book? I was thinking of a really academic term. I was going to call it a mutt. <laughs> it was a, if it was a breed of if it was a breed of dog, it would be a mutt. Uh, it's uh, it's eclectic because I think it, like you said, it borrows from different disciplines. There's a lot of fiction in there, you know, dealing with uh, people like Cormac McCarthy and Flannery O'Connor and Marilyn Robinson and John Steinbeck. That there's also theology and, and biblical studies. So if I had to sort of just quantify it, other than calling it a mutt. Uh, I, I would say that it it's an exercise in the Christian imagination and in what I would call developing a theology of the imagination, which is going to involve more than just reading Bible and theology, but becoming conversant with the language of story uh, to to speak into a culture that that needs to kind of have its imagination re-narrated uh, in different ways. And so I suppose, uh, a theology of the imagination for a for a divided or a polarized culture would be one way to describe it. So you're saying we could have gone with that for a subtitle. So we could probably have <laughs> uh, just just a mutt. A mutt would be something you could consider for the follow up. Well, I w- I have to say I think the initial response has been really positive to the book. I've liked seeing that. We have some really strong endorsements. I particularly liked. I'll just read a portion of one that came from Karen Swallow Pryor. Uh, where she says that perhaps is one of the most faith-building books I've read in a long time. Mm. I love that quote. And I think it really speaks to the fact that you're meeting a need. So, you know, in publishing, sometimes we talk about wanting to publish books that meet a felt need, right? There's, Mm. there's some kind of sense that people have, whether that's in society at large or in the church or, you know, other institutions that there's some kind of need that we have. So why did you write this? What felt need did you identify and that you're trying to meet with this book? I think I was, I was trying to speak to an audience who feels like they don't belong very well in either of the kind of polarized extremes that we see in our culture or in the church. I think there's a lot of people out there who, who feel a bit terrorized by the fringes. And so the two extremes that I talk about, you know, on one side is this really crippling secular doubt that sort of is a slide towards agnosticism or even atheism. But the other side is this sort of increasingly angry or narrow religious dogmatism that is is sort of um, trying to make evangelical synonymous with fundamentalist. Um, and increasingly, those two extremes, I think, are are engaged in this sort of food fight. And there's a lot of people caught in the middle and I'm trying to, to speak to them. A lot of them are my former students who have graduated from a Christian university and gone out to, to pastor or to work. And they look around them at the, the divisions in our culture. And they're just like, I don't know if I can stay on, you know, whatever you want to call it, team evangelical or team Jesus, when they're, when they're looking at um, some of the self-appointed spokespersons uh, for that team. 
but they they also deeply want they they long for transcendence they they want a relationship with god and um they just feel kind of caught in the middle of this um this shouting match and so i think that's the need that I, i'm trying to meet is is to write to those people in that middle ground who feel like they're a little bit homeless um in spite of their their longing for for god and for for christ that's great i appreciate that and I think you do an excellent job of kind of showing the way that a Christian imagination, as you described it earlier, can help people in that situation. But I'm, I'm, I want to ask a, ask a follow-up question about that. Um, and maybe on both sides of that. So two questions. Here's the first one. You know, as I read scripture, I find, for example, the command, the, the imperative that we are called to be prepared to give an answer, right? To, be, to give an answer for the hope that we have. We read that in first Peter three, of course. And you know, that the church has worked painstakingly hard to define its belief, to define its orthodoxy. And that has often come at great expense to Christians. So I guess a, a follow-up question might be, for as helpful as this kind of Christian imagination, exploring that middle ground is, what's wrong with certainty? Mm. Yeah, I think you know a lot of us would like certainty. Uh, we would like uh, just an absolute certitude that the things that we're putting our trust in are objectively true and that would be really nice if if we could attain that sort of i guess mathematical certitude um, but i think most of us have found that it's a bit elusive when we're talking about the most important things the questions that really matter they're, they're not the kinds of things that you can quantify um like uh, maybe some other areas of life and i so i think that's one one problem with certainties is is that it's elusive it eludes us when we go reaching for it, especially on questions of God and meaning and things like that. But I think another problem with it is that it's not something that the scriptures seem to be particularly concerned with. Uh, the scriptures seem to be concerned with um, us being persons of faith. And you quoted that passage uh, from First Peter that to give an answer for the the hope that you have. It doesn't say to give an answer for the certainty that you have. And hope by its very nature is something that lacks, I think, a certain sort of mathematical certainty. So that would be maybe a second problem with, with certitude. I, I am totally uh, cool with talking about um, the gift of assurance. I do think that there is an assurance of our salvation that comes through experiences we have, through walking with Christ over years, through uh, enmeshing ourselves in a worshiping community. I think assurance is, is a good thing, but I don't think that certitude is necessarily the same thing as that, at least in most people's, in most people's minds. And so maybe one last problem with certainty is I think in some communities, especially if we're talking about say a, a prosperity gospel type community, um, that faith and certainty are equated and the the implicit message is well if your prayers aren't getting answered if your spouse isn't healed from the cancer if your job doesn't pay you you know six figures then it must be because you don't have enough faith and what they really mean is it's because you're not certain deep down there's some hidden vestige of doubt deep down and i think that is antithetical to scripture and i think it's often used to sort of shame people um 
for things that have gone wrong in their life and saying it's, well, it's, you must've had some little snippet of doubt. And so that's why, you know, the healing didn't happen. Mm -hmm. All of those are reasons why I think a fixation on certainty can be really, really problematic. Hey, Outpost Theology listeners, Oklahoma Wesleyan University is excited to announce our very first doctoral degree, and it's our doctorate in nursing practice. In addition to our undergraduate degree in nursing, OKWU's Doctor of Nursing Practice and Executive Leadership is designed to equip nurses to serve at the highest level of nursing practice. It develops nurse leaders who improve patient outcomes and health systems by translating research into practice and all of that from the standpoint of a Christian worldview. If you or someone you know is interested in our nursing program or in our Doctorate of Nursing Practice, just go to okwu.edu to find out more. Thank you. I like how you express that. Um, you know, on, on the other side of that coin, on sort of the other end of the spectrum, if you like, uh, there is, of course, an element of mystery to our faith. And I mean, I, I imagine you say something similar in your classes to your students. I tell, you know, my students um, at Wheaton sometimes like, you know, theology actually is, it's almost, it's an impossibility without God's grace, without God's presence. So we are taking, you know, finite, creaturely, fallen, broken language and applying it to the infinite, to the divine. So theology is already, you know, um, already has huge hurdles to try to overcome. So there's inevitably an element of mystery, even as we articulate our faith, as the church articulates its faith. So I'm wondering, when is it okay to let the mystery stand? You know, I mean, there are some traditions that are more comfortable with that. I think of like a an Eastern Orthodox kind of apophatic tradition. Like, when is it okay to to not have to explore those empty spaces on the map and just to kind of stop, you know, and say, this is going to be a mysterious place for us. Yeah. I think, I think mystery is, is needed, especially in, in certain segments of the church where it's been devalued um, or it's been, um, it's, it's been kind of communicated in one way or another that you can always get beyond that to kind of certitude or, you know, and I, so I think there's a real place for mystery. And that's one of the things that this book is, is trying to do for evangelicals is to, I mean, that word perhaps implies um, a lack of total certitude in certain ways, which also implies the presence of mystery. So um, I think a place for that in theology is, is essential, but I would also say that it matters when you lay down the mystery card. Uh, and so I, I have a chapter in the book, as you know, that talk about guardrails to mm-hmm. the saying of perhaps. And, and one of the guardrails that I mentioned there is don't rush the mystery card. Uh, because sometimes evoking the category of mystery is a way to just get around the difficult work of thinking theologically or biblically, or it's a way, it's a way to excuse really muddled, contradictory thinking and just saying, ah, well, it's a mystery, you know? Um, and so uh, I think it's important to have that category in our theology, but it can't be used as an excuse to get around the difficult work of really thinking through what the scriptures are claiming or what the tradition is saying. It can't be rushed as a kind of get out of jail free card. And uh, I think I have a quote mm-hmm. in there from Bonhoeffer where he talks about that. And he says that, you know, that, that line that, oh, you know, one can know nothing 
for certain. It, it, it means something quite different at the end of a long life of searching than it does on the first day of the semester. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. a sort of loose paraphrase. If a student's just being lazy and doesn't want to do the, the, the thoughtful work, the mystery card is, is a bad and kind of lazy option in that case. But it's an, it's an important one to play um, a little bit later in the game, I think. No, that's great. And you just mentioned Bonhoeffer. And throughout the book, you mention several people who you think kind of embody this or kind of give us a glimpse of this. Could you maybe just lift out two examples for us? Somebody perhaps, you know, earlier in the history of the church and perhaps a contemporary example, people who you think do this kind of perhapsing uh, well. I love, by the way, that you turned that into a verb that, you know, this, this perhapsing that people do. Can you give us some examples? Yeah, the the title of the book comes from a quote by N.T. Wright in his big book on Paul, where he says that sometimes believing in providence means learning how to say perhaps. But one of the things I note early on is, well, we're going to need somebody more than, I mean, I love Wright, but we're going to need some examples beyond just him and from earlier in the tradition, like you say. So if I could go back even prior to the, the, the Christian tradition or the church tradition, the person that I hold up as an example in chapter one is Abraham. Um, and Abraham's willingness to obey God, even in the face of the horrific command to offer up his, his son, Isaac. And, uh, we Christians have often wondered, or in Jews, others have wondered, you know, how in the world could you do that? Even in an ancient context, which maybe has different presuppositions than ours about sacrifice and whatnot. But in the book of Hebrews, it says that Abraham was able to do that because he considered or he reckoned or he reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so I hold up Abraham as our kind of forefather, not just in the faith, but our forefather in the saying of perhaps, because he's, he's essentially saying, this doesn't maybe seem to make a whole lot of sense, but I'm going to trust God because he's proven faithful in the past to bring forth life from death. What if he could do that in an even more extreme sense? And it's that what if or that reasoning or in the Greek, the lagisomenos that he says there, at least according to Hebrews, that enables him to step forward in obedient faith. And he turns out in one sense to be wrong because God doesn't have to raise up Isaac from the ash heap. There's a different way. And that's an important point about perhapsing is we don't always get it right. Um, Mm -hmm. But in another sense, Abraham is correct because it is through the death and resurrection of the beloved son that God's work is ultimately fulfilled, not with Isaac on the altar, but with Christ on the cross. And so even our imperfect sort of grasping uh, for the truth of God in the saying of perhaps uh, can be beneficial. So I think Abraham is, is the first example that I would hold up from the biblical tradition. But if you want to talk about the, the church tradition, uh, somebody like Jonathan Edwards is uh, mm-hmm. somebody I deal with in chapter two, where I talk about you know three examples of people in church history who've said perhaps. So origin of Alexandria, Julian of Norwich, and Jonathan Edwards. And uh, I have differences with Edwards in various at various points, I think some aspects of his theology are just plain weird. Uh, but one of the things that I love about him is what's been called his sort of non-contrastive impulse. And that's uh, not a phrase that's u- unique to me, but 
we see that, for instance, when Edwards tries to bring together these two kind of reasonably well-established uh, ideas, and he tries to bring them into relation instead of pitting them against each other. Uh, and the first idea is that humans desire happiness. And then the second idea is that God desires glory or glorification. And instead of pitting those two against each other, like you have to either pick happiness or glorifying God, he brings them together and says that actually that God receives glory from creatures when we find our happiness or our fulfillment or our contentment in him. And so they don't have to be pitted against each other. And I think that tells us something important about the theological imagination or also about creativity, that creativity is not necessarily coming up with some new thought that no one has ever thought before. Um, oftentimes that's heresy in the Christian tradition. Uh, but, but creativity is bringing into relation two truths that maybe haven't been adequately connected, just like Edwards does with our human desire for happiness and um, God's desire to be glorified. So I think he's a, he's a great example in that particular area of this Christian imagination, this creative thinking and the saying of perhaps in a way that, uh, that really is, is helpful. That's great. Thank you. As you said in the book, you offer a lot of examples. So thank you for just offering too many, many more uh, to find there. Hey, Outpost Theology listeners, one of the programs that I'm probably most passionate about at Oklahoma Wesleyan University is the one I teach in, and that's the School of Ministry and Christian Thought. And the School of Ministry is designed to train up leaders for the future of the church in degrees like global studies or missions for youth and family ministry. We have degrees in Bible and theology and, of course, degrees in pastoral ministry with a variety of specializations, for instance, in youth ministry or worship arts or in pastoral counseling. If you or someone you know is feeling a call to ministry, we want to help. And you can reach out at okwu.edu to find out more about the School of Ministry and all of our other degrees here at Oklahoma Wesleyan University. Hey, I want to um, go behind the curtain a little bit with you. Um, so if if I could take uh, Facebook as a good indicator, um, and I'll just assume that for the time being, <laughs> Uh, we would seem to have kids of roughly the same age, got, you know, some, some younger kids. So I have certainly found that kids ask really interesting, perceptive, unexpected questions. So I'm wondering, have your kids helped you ask perhaps in surprising ways? Yeah, I, you know, bedtime brings out the deep questions. I don't know if it that does at your house. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, it does. And sometimes they're just a dodge. They're just a way to like delay sleep, you know. True. But uh, at least for my kids. But sometimes I think they're genuine and mm -hmm. they can actually spur on theological um, thought, you know, in, in really helpful ways because they tend to get right to the heart of the issue without jargon, you know, with, mm -hmm. without big academic words. And um, so I'm actually writing a, another book right now on the atonement, which is a popular level book and looking at kind of how Jesus saves. And it wasn't, it was really spurred on by my, my daughter, Lucy, who is, she's 10 years old right now. But when she asked me this question, she was probably, I don't know, six or so. 
And one night she just said, you know, daddy, how does Jesus save us by dying? By dying on the cross. Mm-hmm. And because we pray at night and we, we talk about, you know, we thank God for sending Christ to, um, to teach us and to die for our sins and to rise again and all this, you know, standard kind of Christian stuff. And, and she just had this thought and like, wait a minute, like, I know death a little bit. Like she had an uncle who had just passed away at a really young age from Lou Gehrig's disease, you know, just a Mm -hmm. tragic, a tragic thing. And he was about the same age as Jesus, you know, when Jesus was crucified. And so in her mind, it's just like, wait a minute, like we all know death is bad. How in the world is the cross somehow good news? And uh, that's a really obvious maybe question that, you know, Christians need to sort through, but it almost took a, a six-year-old mm-hmm. putting her finger on it for me to say, I need to really articulate that for a popular audience um, in a way that she can understand that uh, I think, so that's, that's one example from my kids. And maybe a, a second example is that, um, and this doesn't relate to my kids specifically, but when I grade papers as a professor, Mm-hmm. Uh, as I've been doing this morning, I often think that the paper would be better if it were written more in the language of my 10-year-old daughter and less in the language of sort of academic jargon, um, mm. looking for the big words, even if we don't quite know what they mean, we'll just throw a few in there. Um, and that's that's the second area where I think having kids maybe about the same age as your kids has hopefully made me a little bit better writer um, in trying to to be clear rather than just trying to sound smart or something like that. Yeah, no, you you write very well, and and you have some wonderful turns of phrases in there um, in the book. So yeah, we've definitely had the the nighttime the bedtime conversation. You know, the uh, explain the Trinity to me kind of you know conversations <laughs> as you're going to sleep. So yeah, hey. Um, Let's talk a little bit about your your writing style, your writing habits. So what kind of rituals do you use when you write? Do you have like a, a particular time of the day you like to write or a place you like to go? What do you do? Yeah, I, I write in the mornings. And uh, when I did my PhD, I had I got up really early because I was teaching a full load at the same time I was working on my, my PhD thesis. And so I had to get up really early to work on the thesis. And uh, I'm a morning person if I have, you know, strong, good coffee in my system. And uh, so I've kind of kept that rhythm even after the PhD and said, you know, I've gotten into this rhythm of early morning writing. If I can just keep doing that, then I can continue to to publish and to, to hopefully do things that are helpful for the church and things like that. I don't, I will say, I don't, I don't get up quite as early now as I did uh, when, <laughs> when I was hanging, when I had the PhD thing hanging over my head. It's a little more relaxed now, but I've always been a morning writer and I can't think clearly past about three in the afternoon. And uh, okay. So, <laughs> so no afternoon meetings for you. Well, I could sit in the meeting. I just might not have anything to contribute. That's uh, that people might prefer that. I'd be a little quieter, maybe. But so that's that's kind of my ritual for writing. And I I like to get outside as much as I can. Um, we have a a really cool building in town, which is a Frank Lloyd Wright uh, building. His only quote skyscraper. It's called the Price Tower, and it's a strange but really cool building. And uh, sometimes I'll just go up there on the you know 
16th floor on the balcony and look out over the city. And, and that's where I wrote part of this book. And I don't know how it is for you or for your other authors, you know, but for me, the, the setting that I write in is actually pretty important for the creativity that I, that I write with. So that's kind of my routine a little bit. Oh, that's great. Yeah. The space that you find or the time that you find that can really shape a project that can really shape a book. Absolutely. I think you've answered my next question, which is probably a debate more among my British friends on, you know, coffee or tea. It sounds like you're strong coffee. Yeah. I'm an, I'm an, I'm an American in that regard, even though I, <laughs> I went over to England for my, uh, for my doctorate and I just, I don't get tea. I, I don't, I don't get, I don't understand. It's just, to me, it's just like dirty water. Uh, so I, it's not my, I don't want to offend anybody over there in the UK, but it's, it's just not for me. That's fine. That's fine. You know, um, I was overseas as well for my doctorate and we had a, um, a time in this particular community that I was part of that, uh, twice a day, they would stop for a break and it was coffee or tea. There was a, every day it was like a debate. What are you going to have? What are you having? So, um, to come back to your book, uh, something that I particularly liked about it and the way that I think you actually embodied a little bit of the perhaps in was the inclusion of this really interesting fictional story. So not only do you engage with fictional works uh, like Conrad, who you started with, um, but you do that a little bit yourself. So you have this kind of you know, fictional story. You have a couple other examples as well, but this one kind of repeats, kind of runs as a thread throughout the book, the story of Eliza. I wonder, how did you come to develop that? Why was that important? to you to include in the book? I think it, it goes back to something my, my PhD supervisor said, even about my dissertation. And he had said, listen, you know, form needs to match content. And, and that somehow flickered in my memory as I was thinking about this book, that if I'm going to talk about the Christian imagination and the need for story and not just arguments, um, I probably should try to have form match content. And so I thought, what if I could write a fictional story about someone who is kind of living through some of the some of the challenges and the tensions that I'm describing in this book? You know, the tension between you know the the polarized extremes in our culture and uh, feeling a, a sense that she may be losing her faith and uh, feeling kind of spiritually and politically homeless. Um, and so I came up with. Uh, this idea for a character and her name is Eliza Johnson, who's basically a young woman who's just graduated from high school and goes off to a Christian university. And unbeknownst to her, it turns out to be kind of more of a sort of a more fundamentalist type university. And she experiences uh, kind of a loss of her faith for various reasons. And, uh, and I say very upfront in the, in the intro, it's not my university. I'm not, you know, smearing my, pl my place, but uh, the part, the reason I, chose to do it like that is I have a lot of students who um, Eliza is not based on any one actual person, but the kinds of things that she goes through in this story that I write are, are things that I hear my students saying to me in my office, my former students saying to me, and, and it allows me to kind of give voice to them as they, as sort of young Christians living in a polarized culture, wrestling with doubt, wrestling with dogmatism. Uh, it allows me to sort of uh, shine a light on their experience in certain ways, at least as they've conveyed it to me. And um, just from the people I've talked to 
already on podcasts and whatnot, people who've read the book, uh, a lot of them have said that was their favorite part of the book. And so I hope that I, it was the part I was most nervous about because I've never written fiction. You know, I'm not a novelist or anything, but the ones that I've talked to in interviews like this, they've said that that was kind of their favorite uh, aspect of it. And so it was, it was kind of cool to say, well, this is kind of a weird idea that people seem at least so far to appreciate the the fictional narrative of Eliza that weaves through those nonfiction chapters uh, all the way through. No, I thought it did that really well. It really helped uh, to have the content match form. It was great. So you had mentioned before that, that you in part wrote the book for some of your former students who are now pastors. So let's say I'm a pastor. Let's say I'm you know, caring for my congregation during this challenging time. I'm, you know, preaching the word of God, offering pastoral care, praying with them, praying for them, and all, you know, everything else that comes along with being a pastor. How do you think your book and the idea of exploring, perhaps, can inform the task of the pastor? Yeah, well, as I talk to pastors now, after 2020 and, you know, part of 2021, I don't know any pastor who hasn't who this hasn't been like one of the most difficult seasons of his or her ministry, you know, and so many pastors are just about ready to throw in the towel. And so I'm writing for them in some ways as well. But um, I think one of the ways that it can help them is to encourage them. They don't have to pick a, a side in this sort of cultural food fight, so to speak, or this partisan shouting match, that the way of Jesus encourages us not to just fall in line with any particular fallen earthly um, camp, so to speak, in this divide. And that's a risky place to be in, in the middle, because you tend to catch fire from both sides. Uh, You tend to get um, sort of shot at from both extremes. But I'm increasingly convinced that that's where Jesus would be. Um, and that's, I think that's where Jesus was in many ways in second temple Judaism. I think he was kind of fielding fire from various factions that each wanted him to sort of just go all in on their particular agenda. So I hope one thing that comes out of it is maybe a courage to stand in sort of that sacred middle space without just capitulating to one side or the other. But a second thing I would say is that the use of story and imagination, I think, can be tools for pastors to reach people in whatever camp they reside in. I think the language of story is more effective in moving people and moving their hearts and their wills and their desires than, say, a very sort of didactic, um, you know, you listen here, just do this. So it, that With mm-hmm. story, sometimes our defenses come down and mm. we can imagine ourselves in a different person's situation. And so leaning into the use of story, I think, as I do in this book, hopefully can give pastors a little bit of a model for how to do that, maybe in their own context, whether it's in preaching or in writing or even in just conversation. That's fantastic. Well, Josh, let me uh, conclude just with a word of thanks. Thank you first for inviting me to come on the podcast and to uh, interview you about your book. And also thank you for the contribution of the book to IVP Academic and again to both the Academy and the church. And just a a personal note, I mentioned this to you, but 
Um, you know, this actually was the 100th book that I edited that has come to print since my time coming to IVP Academic. Now, I know you didn't start out thinking, I'm going to write this book so, you know, David can get his 100th book, but that's just the way it worked out. And I was just, I was so pleased uh, that that worked out. So thank you again so much for the opportunity to work with you and speak with you today. I really appreciate that, David. If I, if I could, I know I'm not doing the interview. Can I ask you a question here? Sure. Yeah. This is the first interview where we've had an actual editor um, on the on the podcast. And I've often thought about having, you know, somebody from the publishing side of things. Um, so now I have to think of a good question for an editor and that's the challenge. <laughs> we'll, we'll just edit this out if I can't think of anything, but um, for, for people who are aspiring writers, mm. I'm sure you get a ton of, you know, inquiries from folks like that, really folks like me in many ways, what advice do you give them if they want to have a voice in Christian publishing. Um, and uh, it could be, I know you work on the academic side a little bit more, but mm -hmm. um, people who, who they care about the church, they enjoy the, the craft of writing. Do you have kind of a standard bit of advice that you give them writers who are starting out and they're maybe early in the, in the game, so to speak, that uh, from, from an editor's perspective? Yeah. Thanks for asking. You know, I would say it is a little bit different uh, working on the academic line as I do, uh, there are certain markers that you might typically look for or expect, you know, from an academic author, having certain you know, credentials, being placed at, you know, institution, having a certain position. Although I will say, like, there are a variety of positions that people might have and still publish for an academic line, ours or somebody else's. So uh, that's a little bit different. But I think generally speaking, uh, the thing that I would say, uh, first and foremost, is to be passionate about your topic. I mean, that, I think that comes through, that really came through in your book. Uh, what is it that you want to say? What is it you want the church to know? What do you want your Christian friends or your non-Christian friends to know or to hear? Uh, and how can you communicate that best to them? So I think, yes, there are certain markers that we look for, you know, background, experience, educational uh, background, your institutional affiliation, um, your, what we would call in the industry, your platform, you know, like kind of what's your social media presence. That's a factor. I would say probably more so on the, on the general side, but, uh, certainly a factor as well for us. So, um, all of those things kind of go together, right? All of those feed into a decision to publish a particular project. But the thing that comes through for me most is, are you passionate about what you want to say? Just, does this matter to you? What is, what, why do you want to say this? And I think that comes through most clearly. The other thing I might say is that publishing, like a lot of industries, is what I would describe as a, um, a process of risk management. Like, you know, we are, as a publisher, any publisher who's doing this, you know, is engaged in managing risk. We are extending ourselves. We are taking risks on authors. And some of those are risks that, um, you know, we have confidence that we know this person, we know this author, they we know they write well. We know they have an established readership. So our risk is reduced in that process. Mm -hmm. But what are the things that you can do to reduce my risk, right? To reduce our risk. Um, does that mean that sometimes we're extending ourselves a bit for, say, a new author or kind of a, a different sort of project? I mean, I didn't feel, you know, like we were extending ourselves particularly for your project in that regard, just given, you know, who you are. And, uh, but it is different. It doesn't, like this project, as we've talked a bit about already, doesn't fit into a neat category, right? Mm -hmm. That's a little bit different for us. So there are ways that publishers, I would say, 
are willing to extend risk. A helpful thing is, well, what can I do to reduce that risk? So does it come with, I don't know, a kind of you know podcast or other kind of social media presence? Does it come with the institutional buy-in? Does it come with a forward from somebody? There's lots of things that you can do. There's not just like one box to tick. There's other, other ways to do that. So I think those two things, kind of thinking about you know, what's my passion? What do I want to say? How do I want to communicate that? How do I do that well? And then how can I work with a publisher in a genuine partnership um, to reduce risk? You know, and, and I guess maybe tied into that a little bit is, is seeing it as a partnership. You know, I mean, I certainly am working with you and all of our other authors. You know, I, I genuinely want to work with the author to allow him or her to, to have their voice to communicate about that passionately. It's also a, a, what this sometimes I describe publishing as a, a big group project, mm. right? Like. The author's taking the lead on that, but you're going to get feedback from me and from peer reviewers and other readers, you know, our design team and our marketing team and everybody's kind of working together. It's sort of, it's this big like group project endeavor. Mm. And so I think having a, a willingness to enter into that partnership with the publisher with that kind of spirit is important as well. So yeah. that's I really say a lot more, but I think yeah, I'll, yeah. I'll just stop there for now. Yeah, so just to kind of reiterate, first off, you mentioned, and especially in academic publishing, there's certain credentials and certain things that that matter, mm -hmm. or the education mm -hmm. or institution affiliation. Secondly, though, just a passion for what your topic is and knowing what you want to say about it. But then thirdly, that willingness to work with the publisher to help reduce the publisher's risk, really get the book out there, get you yeah. know traction um, so that it's not you know, so that it doesn't fall flat. I think that's, those are three helpful things. And I appreciate IVP. This is the first book I've published with IVP. So I appreciate uh, you and, and IVP academic uh, just allowing me to, uh, to get this work out there. And uh, I hope the, the listeners will go not just, not just one copy. I mean, we're talking maybe several dozen copies. You could give there them you to go. your, uh, to your, uh, your kids, your, uh, I don't know, your mailman, any, anybody, your whole small group. That's right. Well, hey, David, thanks for thanks for interviewing me. Thanks for turning the tables and thanks for all your help on uh, perhaps reclaiming the space between doubt and dogmatism. Thanks, Josh.